Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Seeker Plus, the podcast series where we take a deep dive into the science of one topic. I'm Julian Huguet, and I'll be your host. Boy, it's been a long time since we posted one of these, so thank you so much for joining us. I'm excited to be here. I hope you are, too. Now, because the show is coming back from the dead, so to speak, and we are approaching Halloween, we thought it would be fun to start with everyone's favorite undead bedsheet apparition, ghosts! So in this episode, we'll be talking about what science says about ghosts. We'll myth bust a bit about hauntings, get into what we actually know about what happens when we die, what we don't know about what happens when we die, and we'll get into the pros and cons sometimes literally, of believing in ghosts. Okay, so let's get into it. Ghosts. Have you seen one? No, I mean, like really, have you? It's okay to say, yeah, I think I've seen a ghost. You have a lot of company. Plenty of people have ghost stories. A recent YouGov poll found that 20% of Americans believe in ghosts, saying they definitely exist, and another 25% said that they probably exist. So. It's about half the country that says that ghosts probably exist. And, of course, it's not just limited to the USA. The idea of ghosts can be found in one form or another in just about every culture in every part of the world in all of recorded history. So why? Why do we see or hear ghosts? Or at least why do we think we see or hear ghosts? Well, the first thing we should go over is a concept that many of you are probably familiar with, pareidolia. This is the phenomenon where your brain takes something random and gives it meaning. You can think of craters on the moon that we see a face in, or random shapes of a cloud that we interpret to look like a bunny, or when we see some shadows cast on a wall, and ah, it's a ghost! This is one of the go-to scientific explanations for why people see ghosts. Numerous studies state that the more people see faces in objects, the more they probably believe in paranormal things. And according to science, when you combine our tendency to see patterns where there are none with an existing belief in the supernatural, the likelihood that you'll see something goes up. There's actually been studies on this, on how belief in ghosts or the paranormal will make you more likely to see a ghost. One study showed that if there's a credible source that says ghosts are real, the likelihood that people will believe in them goes up. The study pointed out that children and scientists were counted as credible sources, but written text was not, so do with that what you will. Other studies have shown that if you verbally tell someone something like, hey, this place is haunted, before you go in, you're more likely to think you see a ghost once you're inside. One study mentioned the White Christmas Effect, where they asked participants to close their eyes and think of that song for 30 seconds. You can go ahead and do it right now. You know the one, right? I'm dreaming. Okay, I'm going to stop singing it, but just listen. Do you think you actually started hearing it? Because most participants in this study said that they could hear the song clearly. Scientists have connected this to hauntings, saying if you're in a dark old building that someone told you is haunted, and you close your eyes and listen for voices or chains rattling or spooky sounds, you might just be tricked into hearing it. The paper I read also pointed out that studies into why people see ghosts are mostly inconclusive, because if you believe, 
it's more likely you're going to see it no matter what. And if you're skeptical, you're more likely not to see it. So because of that, the data is kind of skewed and difficult to parse. But psychologically, if you believe there is a ghost, your brain is more likely to create something out of nothing. Also, it's good to note that scientists have related ghost experiences with things like sleep deprivation, tiredness, drug use, brain disorders, and epilepsy. I'm going to skip all of those because I didn't actually find a lot of studies on those. They are usually used in throwaway lines and opening paragraphs of articles or studies about why we see ghosts, but I do want to read one opening paragraph of a paper called Sensory Dynamics of Visual Hallucinations in the Normal Population. <clears throat> Quote, Hallucinations can occur in both healthy and unwell people. Drugs, sleep deprivation, loss of vision, and migraines can all trigger visual hallucinations in people with no psychiatric illness. We have known for more than 200 years that flickering light can induce hallucinations in almost anyone. Unquote. We knew that for 200 years? Who knew that? I didn't know that. Okay, sorry. <laughs> I got carried away because I'm just a little surprised. They just dropped that in there like everybody knew. But looking into this, what they really are saying is they can make people see gray blobs with flashing light, which, you know, big whoop. Call me when you can make people see a floating pirate ship or something. Anyway, let's get into some explanations for ghost sightings that kind of fascinate me when I learned about them. My personal favorite theory is carbon monoxide poisoning. There's a famous case of a family that moved into a big old house and they started experiencing classic haunting things. You know, strange sensations, hearing footsteps, seeing figures. All of these symptoms were traced back to a faulty furnace that was leaking carbon monoxide. There's a more recent case where a woman was in a panic after seeing a ghost while taking a shower, which I think I'd panic if I saw anybody while taking a shower. When they investigated it, a new gas water heater was found to be installed improperly and it was filling her house with carbon monoxide. The interesting thing I think about the carbon monoxide explanation is carbon monoxide poisoning lines up with a lot of things that are often attributed to hauntings. Things like pressure in your chest, auditory hallucinations, and, my personal favorite, a feeling of unexplained dread. So add to that fact that carbon monoxide is made when heating appliances, like stoves and furnaces, aren't well maintained, which is more likely to happen in aging, dilapidated buildings, and it's easy to see how many creaky old houses get a reputation for being haunted. Though, again, Carbon monoxide leaks, they can happen anywhere. One woman in a suburb of LA called Sherman Oaks was sure she was haunted until she learned about carbon monoxide poisoning, had the gas company come out and test for it, and yeah, they found it was there. They even told her that if she hadn't called, she probably would have died soon. And I just want to say, I've been to Sherman Oaks, I live near Sherman Oaks, there's no ghosts in Sherman Oaks, so I'm glad she called the gas company. Another fun explanation for hauntings that is definitely not ghosts is actually sound waves. One study cited in a paper I was reading called The Physics of False Poltergeists, which is just a fantastic paper name. Anyway, the author's basic point was some natural acoustic phenomena can do things like rattle windows and doors and create some noise illusions. There's also evidence that infrasound, sound below the range that you can hear, which is at about 19 hertz, can cause you to have these eerie feelings and a sense of doom. It can also cause vibrations in your eyeball 
that make you perceive seeing things out of the corner of your eye. This happened to one guy in a lab, and he wrote a paper about it called Ghost in the Machine, which, again, another great paper title. Basically, he found a fan that was running and was emitting this low-frequency sound, and when he turned it off, his paranormal experiences stopped. Now, not everyone agrees with the Ghost in the Machine conclusion that there is a fear frequency, so to speak, that exists. However, there have been a lot of tests and studies into infrasound and sound waves, and it feels like there's a definite connection between infrasound and this sense of uneasiness. So I actually went into this episode thinking that we were going to completely blow the lid off all of these hauntings, but it's funny how often science looks into finding actual reasons for paranormal stuff and still a lot of times walks away going, eh, who knows? Again, the challenge is getting unbiased data, and also it's really tough to prove that something doesn't exist. Finally, let's talk about sleep paralysis, which many experts point to as why people report ghosts and, as a bonus, alien abductions. So basically, when you're dreaming in REM sleep, your body tries to be in a paralysis mode. So if you're dreaming about running, jumping, baking a cake with Celine Dion, whatever it may be, your body doesn't actually act those things out. Now, sometimes things get screwed up and you start to wake up, but your body is still in this state of paralysis. Now, because things are screwed up, you also might have a kind of waking dream. These hallucinations, they can be visual, but they can also be sound or smell or a feeling. An interview with a doctor at the Cleveland Clinic said that the contents of these hallucinations kind of come down to your culture. Again, if you grew up thinking that there are paranormal things and you wake up paralyzed and hallucinating, your mind is probably going to go to something paranormal, like ghosts or demons. Sleep paralysis and sleep hallucinations are two different things, but they can occur together. There's a great Boston Globe article breaking down how this is all caused by brain communication getting its wires crossed, and if you're interested, you should read it. Okay, so after all that, where do I land? Do I believe in ghosts, or has science convinced me they don't exist? Well, I think that there are so many things out there that can mess with us, starting first and foremost with our brain. Our brain is not the reliable, objective observer that we would all like to believe it is, which I think can account for a lot of hauntings. There's also been some great research done on ghosts and hauntings. Most try to find explanations for what people have experienced. But the trouble is, every situation is different different places, different people, it's hard to replicate something consistently like this and really study it. You can't make a haunted house in a lab and test it over and over again. At least, you know, not, not ethically. You can't make a haunted house ethically. Don't do a murder in a lab for the sake of science. Plus, you know, what part of it do you study? Do you study the feeling of there being a ghost present, or the actual sightings, or the sounds people hear, or doors closing, or furniture's moving. There's so much that happens that people attribute to ghosts. An article on Live Science put it perfectly. If they exist, scientists will be able to prove it. So far, they haven't. And I've provided a lot of studies that offer really compelling alternative explanations. So, maybe to understand if ghosts really exist, we have to study what happens when we die. 
Because the idea about ghosts is that's what happens after some people die. So what do we know about what happens when we die? Well, physically, we know a lot about what happens. Your blood stops pumping, your body gets cold. After a while, rigor mortis sets in, the body starts to decompose and rot, you know, all that fun stuff. But what about the soul? Is there a soul? Are ghosts souls? What are souls? What, what, what is a soul? Where are we starting from? Well, to quote the start of all bad speeches, <clears throat> Webster's Dictionary defines the soul as the spiritual part of a person that is believed to give life to the body and in many religions is believed to live forever. So is that a ghost? Live forever? Sounds like we're onto something. Maybe the most famous experiment that deals with the soul, you know, a scientific attempt to quantify the soul in some way, is the 1907 21 grams experiment. There was a man named Dr. Duncan McDougall, which is a very fun name to say, and he wanted to see if he could calculate the weight of the soul by convincing people who were on their deathbed to die on a different bed that was put on a giant scale, which I guess then would become their deathbed, kind of like, you know, Air Force One, but for beds. After some death and some calculations to account for the fluid loss and the like, Dr. McDougall concluded that the mass of the human soul was all of 21 grams. Even in its time, this experiment was criticized pretty heavily. A uh, lot of errors possibly persisted in McDougall's calculations and in his methodology, and he was also criticized for not including results where the body's didn't show a change in weight, which I guess he's saying they don't have a soul? I don't know. It's so historically bad, there aren't really that many articles talking about it. But as famous as the experiment's results are, the findings were met with dissatisfaction even by other scientists at the time. Another problem with McDougall's experiment was nobody else could replicate his results, which is kind of a big thing in the scientific process. As recently as 2001, there was a guy who tried to replicate the whole weighing a dying body and seeing if there was a difference uh, experiment. And he did it with sheep and goats. And some actually did measure a weight difference, but here's the thing they gained weight when they died. Quote, at the moment of death, an unexplained weight gain transient of 18 to 780 grams for one to six seconds was observed with seven adult sheep, but not with the lambs or goat. Science, right? How cool is that? This scientist blamed the weight gain on a glitch, but I have an alternative hypothesis. I think the sheep actually absorb souls when they die, but nobody will publish my paper on that. Okay, so we haven't yet proved that we have a soul based on anything measurable about souls, not weight or anything else. But what if they don't have a weight because souls are energy, right? We seem to have an energy that animates us, that gives us life. Is that what ghosts are, this continuation of this energy after we die? Okay, well, two things are true. We're all made of energy, right, in the sense that energy and mass is related, and clearly we're animated, there's something powering us, but energy can't be created or destroyed. That's the law of conservation of energy. So when we die, this energy that is powering us when we're living it 
escapes our mortal body and floats off into the environment, and that's ghosts, right? No. We know where the energy goes when we die. It escapes our mortal body. It's not floating around. It's, well, a lot of it gets turned into heat, and a lot of the energy is consumed by other organisms, worms, bacteria that take our atoms and the energy stored within them and repurpose them for their own needs. Unless, of course, you're cremated, in which case that energy is released as both heat and light. That said, there's still something to be said for the fact that the atoms and the energy that we're made of have been around since the Big Bang, and since stars went supernova, and they're going to be around long after we're gone. So yeah, in a sort of sentimental roundabout way, we do live on, but just not as poltergeists or headless horsemen or, you know, anything fun like that. Now, there have been studies about consciousness after death, which, in a way, that's what a ghost is, right? It's a, a conscious dead person. There was a study done across the UK, the United States, and Austria, where they polled a few thousand people who were resuscitated after a fatal cardiac arrest. And I, I put fatal in quotes because, obviously, they live to tell about it. Now, more than 45% answered that they were aware of something happening when they were dead. But this wasn't them floating around the room in a ghost-like manner. They had memories, like their life flashing before their eyes. They saw family members. They saw animals from their past or deja vu. They experienced fear or the bright light that you hear a lot about when people pass. But only 2% of them said that they could see and hear what was happening in the room where they had actually died, quote-unquote. So... 2% ghosts. But these stories still go into the category of near-death experiences, which is not death. Near-dead is still slightly alive. Again, this brings up the difficulty of studying what happens when we die. That's the ironic part about this whole thing. If we could actually find a way to talk to ghosts, that would be the only way to understand what happens when we 100% kick the bucket. Now, some may point to these out-of-body experiences that are pretty consistent even across cultures and religions as proof of an afterlife, but many neuroscientists point to brain activity as the explanation for all of this. They think that the feelings that we get of this sense of calmness and release and that vision of a white light, they're all produced by the brain. It could be as neurons die, it could be part of a defense mechanism. In the 1980s, scientists claimed to have replicated these feelings of going through a tunnel towards a calming white light using the drug ketamine. And it's been studied a lot since then. A more recent study looked into hundreds of accounts of near-death experiences and thousands of stories from drug users and found that ketamine users most often had experiences that were similar to near-death experiences. So great anti-drug PSA for ketamine. Apparently, ketamine feels like you're dying. We should do a whole series on that kind of thing, actually. Again, though, the problem with those stories is they're from near-death experiences, not death. Most studies I've found on the subject of the afterlife, they're using near-death experiences. But if we're talking about proving the existence of ghosts with science, that won't do. We, we need a ghost that's dead-dead, not just kind of dead for a few moments and then brought back.
Maybe my favorite thing I came across about the idea of science proving or disproving the existence of ghosts is everyone's favorite physicist, Brian Cox, basically saying that if ghosts existed, they would have been found at CERN. Oh, what can't that particle accelerator do? To actually quote him, he said, if we want some sort of pattern that carries information about our living cells to persist, then we must specify precisely what medium carries that pattern and how it interacts with the matter particles out of which our bodies are made. We must, in other words, invent an extension to the standard model of particle physics that has escaped detection at the Large Hadron Collider. That's almost inconceivable at the energy scales typical of the particle interactions in our bodies. The Wired article that was talking about this broke down his quote in this way. They said, his explanation for this is simple. If ghosts existed, they would be made purely of energy because they contain no matter, allowing them to pass through walls and do other spooky things. The second law of thermodynamics says the overall entropy or disorder in a system always increases with time. And this means energy is always lost to heat. The only way a ghost could continue to haunt Earth is if they had a constant incoming source of energy. Otherwise, they wouldn't last long at all. What I think Brian meant with this specifically was if there's something that keeps our consciousness going after we die, it's got to be made of some particle that our colliders would have detected because, you know, our brains aren't smashing protons together at near light speed. It's got to be particles that can interact with the matter of our brains and still persist and carry this pattern forward of our consciousness. And nothing we've done experimentally has found a way for our consciousness to continue by being carried by particles. Okay, so there's not a whole lot of scientific evidence that when we die, we transfer into ghosts or ghouls, but I guess that can all depend on what your definition of consciousness is. After reading everything for this episode, it's pretty clear that neuroscientists think the brain creates our consciousness, which is our being, our soul, our self, whatever you want to call it. When the brain shuts off, that's the end of that. It won't exist anymore meaning a conscious ghost can't exist to haunt those that wronged them. But what if scientists invented a way to transfer consciousness before we die? Would that be a ghost? If, if there was a computer where you could ask your great-great-great-grandparent what their life was like and what they're up to right now, would we consider that a ghost? Because that's something people are kind of working on as we speak. So... That would mean if we are ever haunted by someone no longer living, I think it'll be through your computer. Ooh, spooky. The ghost is in the machine. It's going to be real weird watching this episode after I die. So whether ghosts are real or not, I want to talk about the good and the bad in believing in them, because I do think there are positive things about believing in ghosts. Like, it can kind of make you feel better and take the weight of this crazy world off your shoulders. One take on why people see ghosts or believe in the paranormal is that it's a decent coping strategy. According to a psychologist who studies judgment and pattern perception, it's really hard to deal with unpredictability and chaos in the world. 
So instead of accepting that things like natural disasters or sudden deaths happen for no reason, humans have a tendency to think that there must be unseen forces behind these occurrences. We believe in ghosts because it makes us feel less out of control. We can point to a cause. It's a similar train of thought to conspiracy theories, as in, there must be more going on here than meets the eye. People who believe in the paranormal tend to have higher confidence in their decisions than skeptics. They also make ambiguous decisions faster. There's also the emotional side to it. We don't like the idea of our own death, so ghosts are a way that people can live on. In a similar fashion, believing in ghosts can actually be good for society as a whole, because in many cultures, ghost stories are used to teach ethics and morality. Thinking about one of the biggest Halloween tropes, ghosts tend to exist for good reasons. They can't move on after death because they have unfinished business, like an unsolved murder, or a poor relationship on Earth, or a need for justice. Being afraid of this teaches people alive now to be careful about the way that they act. So ghost stories are a way for us to remind each other that the things we do matter beyond just our short lifespans. At least, that's according to one folklore psychologist from USC. Of course, this has been abused. During the Middle Ages, the Christian Church encouraged this terrifying notion that souls could be trapped in purgatory, doomed to a life stuck in the in-between for eternity. But they offered indulgences, where people could make payments to the church and have their sins basically scrubbed from the afterlife record. Kinda shady, if you ask me. Which brings me to the opposite side, why believing in ghosts can be bad for you. And that reason is, for hundreds of years, people have taken advantage of believers and taken a lot of money from them. Not great. So, let's say ghosts aren't real. I don't think they are, but I can't prove it one way or the other. That doesn't mean that people haven't seen them, they've just been fake. There's a long history of people making ghosts for both good and bad reasons. They did it by playing on the beliefs and fears that we just talked about. Maybe the most famous technique is Pepper's Ghost, which is a technique used for centuries but popularized for stage shows in the 1800s, and it's been made world famous by Disneyland's Haunted Mansion. Basically, you can use glass screens to faintly capture reflections of a room that's hidden from the audience. It's actually kind of how teleprompters work, which, ugh, I miss using a teleprompter in Seeker Studio, but... It's a pretty specific reference, I'm sure that makes no difference to you. Anyway, this technique has been used more recently to make ghosts at concerts, most famously that Tupac hologram, which was not a hologram, but a reflection. This illusion was done for paying audiences for the most part. It's a form of entertainment, but other fake ghost creations were done for a more nefarious purpose. They did it to rip off believers. Spiritualism was a huge part of America after the Civil War, which makes sense, since so many people had lost their loved ones. It peaked again globally after World War I and the 1918 flu, and again, it makes sense. A lot of people had loved ones pass away. These spiritualism peaks gave rise to some now very famous ways to, quote, talk to ghosts, like 
automatic writing, also known as the Ouija board. It works because of something called the idiomotor effect. Basically, it's involuntary muscle movement that, in this case, may be swayed by an answer or a desire that a person has in their head. You may not think that you're moving the pointer that will direct you to yes or no or spell out a word, but you actually are. There was something similar called table turning, where the entire table would turn to spell things out. Again, no one would admit to turning the table, but they were. And reading about spiritualism now, historians and scientists alike can safely say it was all a scam to get money from those who were grieving, which really sucks, but not unlike things that we still see today. In fact, even Harry Houdini was out to unmask spiritualists, and he went before Congress to try and testify against them. I kind of wanted to get more into the engineering of some of these spiritualism frauds, but actually they're usually dead simple, pun intended. Like someone kicking a woodblock and pretending it was a knock from beyond the grave, or another person dropping apples on the second story floor to make it sound like knocks were coming from the ceiling. or table turning, or creating fake ectoplasm, which was just wet gauze, or speaking into a spirit trumpet. They're, they're the worst, most low-tech scams, and I'm sorry, but if anyone born in the 19th century is watching this right now, you guys were a bunch of suckers. Come on, wisen up. The other big spiritualism scam, one that still continues to this day, is ghost photographs. Most of that is double exposure trickery, but it can be dust on the lens or user error that people attribute to ghosts. But the double exposure thing goes back to the 1860s, when a photographer figured it out and, of course, used it to scam people. This is back when people used glass plates for photography, so he simply had one glass plate with an image of someone's dead loved one already on it, and then he put in front of that a new glass plate. When he took the picture, both images showed up, so it was like a person was standing there with a cardboard cutout of their dead loved one and they didn't know it. Again, there's not really any deep science to dive into here because faking ghosts 150 years ago was more about creativity and parlor tricks and playing on people's beliefs. Also, fun note, in an article on Fast Company I read on spiritualism fakes, the author ended the piece predicting that things like artificial intelligence and augmented reality, along with other things like deep fakes, will lead to a new era of spiritualism. And considering that we're going through a pandemic where many people are losing loved ones, it's kind of a confluence of terrible things all at once. Be, be ready for more scams that'll try and trick you into speaking or communicating with your loved ones who have passed on. It's something to look forward to. There are already ghost hunting apps, and of course, those are scams too. This all brings me to my final way that people are tricking others into believing in ghosts, and that's with EMF technology, electromagnetic field readers, which they are used for finding problems with faulty wiring. Basically, they make sure that no power lines or old appliances are giving off harmful amounts of radiation. So, when these things detect radiation, the LED light goes from green to red based on the strength. So, ghost hunters think that when this happens, it means there are ghosts. Which isn't true, because we talked about this in the last episode, that ghosts can't be made of energy in ways that we can detect. Also, guess what kind of places probably have faulty wiring? That's right, old houses. My 
goodness, it turns out old houses have a lot of really convenient explanations for the myriad of ghost sightings that people tend to see in them. Go figure. But the reason we're talking about this now is that if you look online, you're going to see a lot of these products sold as a way to find ghosts, which is just another scam. Hold on to your wallet, folks. So should you believe in ghosts? You can if you want, because I can't sit here and tell you that ghosts don't exist. We haven't proved that they don't. We've just proven that certain experiences people have had can be explained by other well-understood phenomena. And believing just might make your day-to-day -day life a little easier, which is nice. It's when that belief goes too far and someone takes advantage of you by selling you a picture of a dead loved one in the room with you or pretending that they can communicate with them. That's where I draw the line and say that maybe believing in ghosts can be harmful. So believe what you like, just be sure you're savvy about it. Thanks for tuning in. I'm your host, Julian Huguet. We'll see you on the next episode of Seeker Plus.